Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, September 30th. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. On this episode, which we're recording Thursday morning, we will celebrate Aaron Judge hitting his 61st home run of the season because people are very excited about that. It doesn't happen very often. If you say anything about the real home run record, I am going to reach through the microphone and throttle you. Oh, you want to talk about the American League home run record instead, Keith? Yes, right, because that's a thing. <laughs> yeah, that... League-specific records have not mattered in 25 years, right? I mean, basically, once we had interleague, we're done. We're just done. I don't really care about league-specific records anymore. I never thought about them as a kid. As much as I loved numbers and records and stats and baseball cards and all that stuff growing up, I never thought about the two leagues separately when it came to records like that. Never. Not once. Not a single time. I bet you I did. I'm a little older than you. I bet you I did at one point, right? Understanding that there were different ones. And, right, because Lou Gehrig has the ALRBI record. You want to talk about a thing I don't care about anymore, right? But there's there's a bit of knowledge, right, from probably when I was like seven years old, right? Different than Hack Wilson. And also, I think there was a thing where if it was somebody from your team, right? Grew up a Yankee fan. My parents are from the Bronx. So if a Yankee held the AL record, there was like, well, we have something. <laughs> we have, that's something is our, you know, and then I turned 10 and that stopped mattering. What do you think about the triple crown being league specific? Do you think that should be kind of pushed away now that we have universal DH in both leagues? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the triple crown is sort of a weird novelty. It's just not that important. But if you want to root for it because it's fun, it's like a no hitter. I love no hitters. They don't mean anything. But they're really fun. Um, I am definitely that guy who, if MLB, I mean, God, I, last night, right? Derek Cole was perfect for five, five or six. And so, of course, I flipped over in the next batter home. So, <laughs> But I am that guy, right? Where it's like, oh, there's no hitter. I want to see the end of the no-hitter. I want to root for it. I absolutely want to root for the no I never, I, I joke about jinxes because jinxes aren't real. But I also, I absolutely want to see a no-hitter. Um, I've been at one in person in the majors. I've been at lots of lower levels and I've been at a couple of near misses and they're really fun. Um, so if you want to root for a judge to win the triple crown, because it's such a novelty, sure. Absolutely. Um, just it's when people are like, well, then he has to win MVP. No, that's not what, what? That's not a thing anymore. It would actually be more interesting. Haven't we not had an NL Triple Crown winner 
since like Enos Slaughter or something. That one goes back real far. Yeah, we were talking a little bit about the Triple Crown yesterday. I mean, the only recent one, of course, is Miguel Cabrera in 2012. So that was an AL. Yeah, when he wasn't even like the second best player in the American League, but a bunch of sports writers who were my parents' age were like, Oh my gosh, he won the Triple Crown. He's got to vote for him. Now his whippersnapper, Mike Trout. You know, now it looks really dumb in hindsight. But, you know, we're going to have that same debate again. Judge wins the Triple Crown? Probably. <laughs> yeah. But I think the NL, right? So I would be interested if somebody did it in the NL just because here's a thing that hasn't happened in 80 years. Yeah. That's interesting. That's just inherently interesting to me. On its face, I don't have to ascribe greater meaning to it and say, okay, this makes the player you know, superhuman or something. Just enjoy it for what it is. Like, I've certainly reached that point in my life, I guess, where I can see that and be like, hey, that no-hitter is really cool. The pitcher is the same guy we thought he was 24 hours ago. But that's incredibly awesome that he did that, right? That's really fun when somebody does something unusual. A four-homer game. I've been at one four-homer game in my lifetime. Those are really rare. And that's pretty awesome. You can really celebrate that. It doesn't mean we should put Mark Whitten in the Hall of Fame. I did get a lot of Mark Whitten baseball cards as a kid after that happened, though. Like That was one of those moments. That's probably 10, 11 years old. And yeah. we thought that was the coolest thing ever, seeing that on the best version of SportsCenter back in the 90s. What if we could get exit velocities on Mark Whitten? Ooh. What if it turned out he was only medium hitting Mark Whitten? It would be a little disappointing. We were right. We we're talking about pool holes yesterday, you know, peak pool holes. And I think the conversation you and I had last year when the Angels let him go is like, this is it. He's done. Oh, he's done. He was absolutely done. All of what he's done this year and even just mostly since July is just yeah. amazing. And without Universal DH, we probably don't even see it happen because he either wouldn't have had the chance to sign with the Cardinals in the first place. Or without Universal DH, they probably wouldn't have waited until the second half of the season for him to produce like this, right? They would have just lost patience. Yeah. and It's fair across the board. That's just how it would have played out. But we were starting to wonder, you know, and I were talking about this, how hard was Albert Pujols hitting the ball at the beginning of his career? Because everything off his bat looked different back then. And I mean, I was 18, 19, 20 years old at the beginning of his career. And I could see it then as a very casual and very excited baseball fan. So I just wonder like, if you could fit StatCast on early Pujols, how, how that would stack up to some of the most ridiculous StatCast numbers we see now. Right. By the way, I do think it's... I, I would absolutely bet somewhere I said to you somewhere else last offseason, well, he's done. I probably said that about Pujols five years ago. And realistically, he's obviously he's done, right? This is the... Lots of players have, you know, they get enough opportunities. They have a short burst of productivity at the very end. I actually looked. I thought his advanced numbers were going to be better for this year based on how everybody's been talking about how well he's played. As it turns out, he's had a couple of amazing weeks, and that's really fun. It's probably, this is the perfect time for him to go out, right? Just be, especially because they're great. They're going somewhere. This is awesome, right? This is a great way for him to end the career. And I do like the fact that Pujols is leaving, will leave with, it's not the Steve Carlton end of career, right? We will remember Pujols for a couple of great moments at the very end when he was 40-something years old and he just got, you know had a, took one sip from the fountain of youth 
and looked a little bit like old Albert, and that's the end. It is wonderful when a player can do that and go out a bit more on his own terms and leave us with the better memory of the player he used to be, as opposed to for folks who don't remember, Steve Carlton just wouldn't let go. He just kept coming back and coming back and, and playing poorly. And um, yes, and so then obviously our memories of him were um, those of us who remember him. Like I, I remember a lot of late stage Steve Carlton and that's not so great. Yeah, players typically don't age like David Ortiz did. Right. That's the outlier. Yeah. That's the unexpected. That's the unusual. Um, it doesn't mean that I am very happy to be wrong in this case. I'm glad that Pujols oh, yeah. is doing what we he's doing. We never root against. Who roots against a player? I mean, God, you, if you're not that old yet, you're going to be soon. I promise you. <laughs> the 11.3% barrel rate for Pujols is the highest that he's had during the StatCast era, though. So he is hitting the ball harder in those those optimal right. angles this year. So he's at least doing that. But I always want to know what do the early 2000s look like if we could somehow retrofit StatCast? Unfortunately, we can't right. do that. Now, a lot going on, of course, beyond Aaron Judge. And, and congrats to him. I mean, it's a huge achievement, especially in the year where power's down to have 61 home runs already, regardless of how you feel about the home run record. He's having a fantastic season. Oh, my God. Yes. That's the whole story for me, and more will be determined on how the Yankees finish. If they win the World Series, that will probably be a bigger deal to judge than the home run total that he ends up with. Yeah, I think somebody made that comment. Was it Petriello? Mike Petriello from MLB? Somebody had a good tweet that was pointing out that Judge in his, what did he go, a week without homering when we were acting like the world was ending? I mean, I'm sure the folks who were MLB who were constantly cutting into every time Judge took a breath felt like the world was ending. Um, and certainly, I guess there's some college football fans who felt like the world was ending. You're not going to get any sympathy from me on that one. Sorry. But uh, Judge was playing great and they were winning. And I'm sure if I don't think anybody, maybe somebody asked him, but I'm sure he'd say, this is fine. Right? I, I want to win. I'm sure he wants to win. So, I mean, he's already earned many accolades. And it's not like he's going to hit, if he was going to hit 73, 74, and tie or break the actual home run record, the real math home run record. That might be different. I, I don't think this one mattered very much for him. If he doesn't homer again the rest of the season, but they get to the playoffs and get to the World Series, I, I am going to guess, not knowing Aaron Judge personally, that he will be fine with that. Also, he's going to get paid, so. That too. He's going to get paid even more than he was going to get paid when he was getting offered long-term deals previously. So Talk about betting on yourself and winning. Yep. Coming up with the, the royal flush just the right time. Let's talk about Tyler Glass now, though, for a moment, because these are the types of things that people can, at least as casual fans, sort of miss because there's historic fun things happening elsewhere. Tyler Glass now is back for the Rays. This is a pretty big deal. Three innings in his season debut whether he's ever going to pitch like six or seven in the postseason, if they make it far enough, that's nah. probably not going to happen. But he looks good. pretty good for three. Yeah, looked really good for three. So if they can get him up to four or five in the next couple of weeks, that's a pretty big boost for a team that I think is still dangerous because of its pitching. Sure. You can look at the group of players in the lineup and talk them down a little bit as more of like a league average lineup. I get that, but they're still a tough problem for a lot of opposing lineups to deal with from just a hitting perspective because their, their pitching is good. Yeah. Were you watching live by any chance? I just saw highlights. So I was, and of course like it didn't occur to me at 
first. Like, I knew, obviously, I knew Glasner was, I knew it was his first start back. That's why I turned it on. But it didn't occur to me that he was going to have a short start, too. So I'm watching, and he's cruising, watching, because I think he gave up one run. And then, um, uh, or maybe he gave up a run afterwards, right? McKenzie had given up a run. Friday. I love Tristan McKenzie. He was, of all my breakout picks this year, he's the one who just truly broke out. Everyone else either just got a little bit better or just didn't do better at all. So he's my one guy. So, of course, I like watching him. And then I turn in the fourth inning. Like, what the hell happened to Glasnow? Like, I had a moment of panic. Oh, my God, did he get hurt? Because I just completely – because he was so fast. He was so good. You are know, like, he's bumping 99. He looks like midseason form, right? He's going to throw five, six, and just didn't click because he looked exactly like he'd looked the last time we saw him. It's amazing to see players coming off of Tommy John and just – not missing a beat like that's right. one of the best parts of of modern baseball it's still not a perfect everyone comes back and is themselves but you see it happen a little more often than we did in the past and uh, for glass now really important uh, that he's he's healthy for the rays they did reveal that shane boz is having tommy john surgery i think he might have had it by now so he'll miss 2023 but that one really sucks yeah big shane boz guy Healthy, he had an argument to be the best pitching prospect in baseball when he was still prospect eligible um, and had basically been healthy the whole way. He'd had a minor hiccup here or there, but I don't think he'd ever had anything hinting at a significant injury. Not that it matters. Anybody can have Tommy John. You don't have to throw hard. You don't even have to be overpitched, but he does throw hard and there's probably a little bit more risk involved with that. Just sucks. He's really good. And if you're the Rays, obviously the Rays do a great job. The farm system is strong. You don't, it's not that easy to replace a Shane Boss. And it's got to, they, I'm sure that at some point they were like, well, next year we'll have Glasnow and Boss in the rotation. That's a pretty good start. Yeah, those two and Shane McClanahan, that's a, that's a nasty trio if you get all three of them healthy at once. Yep, absolutely. I wanted to ask you about Jacob deGrom. We touched on him a little bit in the Thursday episode, just as a, a person that's sort of defying aging curves with velocity. He's finally down sure. in velocity year over year by like less than a half mile per hour with his fastball. So it's not like he's become hittable or anything like that. 98.9 miles per hour, just in case anyone's wondering. The comments from DeGrom all season long have suggested he plans to opt out of his contract and go into free agency this offseason, which given how good he is on a per inning basis makes sense. But it's complicated because of the amount of time that he has lost to injuries over the last two seasons. We're talking about 100 and. 50 combined innings, I believe, going back to the start of last season. Those innings are about as good as anyone you can find. So if you were in a position to offer Jacob deGrom a contract this winter, knowing what he can do and just having the injury history, what would you be looking for? What would you be trying to do? What would you be willing to commit to for a guy that could be such a difference maker when he's healthy, but could certainly leave you in a really difficult spot to have to rely on your depth if arm trouble persists. Yeah, which you just have to assume it's going to, right? I love Jacob Jacob DeGrom. And uh, honestly, if you just sort of compress the last, what, three seasons or together, it looks like an all-timer of a year. There's just no reason to think, especially as he gets older, uh, that he is going to be able to put together a full healthy season. I think you just go in saying, we're going to plan on 15 starts from him. We don't know when they'll be. They might be all together. They might be spread out. And we plan around him. And maybe you do, I think, back to when the Red Sox had Pedro. This might have not have been right out of the shoot with him. But they started 
maybe in the third year he was second or third year he was there though it was he's always getting the extra day anytime we can do that he's getting the extra day so you just was the goal was to have him never pitch on what we would consider regular rest he would always get one or two extra days they would skip a start if they had to because there was sort of a recognition that um he was just wearing down a bit and i would like to think that did not only keep him effective, but help extend his career as well. Maybe they try to do something like that with DeGrom, but maybe that's just not the answer. Maybe there just isn't an answer. But I think if you're the Mets, if you're planning, if you're roster planning for next year, when they get to that point, obviously, uh, it is, we're lucky to have him. We can't bank on even 100 innings out of him. We're just going to assume we're going to get, say, half a season's worth and um, and do the best we can to manage his workload so that happens. Um, so that we get the most we possibly can, but plan to have as full a rotation as you possibly can around him. So I wonder if what he ends up getting eventually as a contract is going to look more like what Max Scherzer just signed with the Mets this past offseason, where it's a massive average annual value, and there's maybe an opt-out after two years, and it's only a three-year deal or a four-year deal. It's a lot shorter than you'd expect for the talent level of the player, if that's how it gets sort of baked in where, yeah, it's a, it's a steep cost relative to what other players get paid, but you're not making such a long commitment into the future that if it does go down the catastrophic injury path, you're, you know, you're not, you're not jeopardizing future seasons because it's just that imbalanced. Right. I mean, I think we've seen a fair number of these contracts for older pitchers. I could see it happening even more. Um, going forward, especially with a handful of examples of guys like this who are, you know, I've always half facetiously talked about the players who are good when healthy, almost like it's one word. Um, I guess it'd be hyphenated, it'd probably be more grammatically correct. And is, is there a better example in the last five years or so than DeGrom? Great when healthy, elite when healthy. And you just sort of structure your contracts around those guys. And if you're DeGrom too, you know, or whoever, it doesn't have to be him specifically. But if you, you're one of those guys, you, obviously you take the most that the market will give you. But I think it is, those are the types of pitchers who might have, there's, I guess, mutual incentive on the part of the player and the team to build something that's a little more incentive laden on. We're going to pay you well with the base, but the more you pitch, we'll really escalate to you know that's the recognition that so much of your value is in you know the extra 20 percent we get out of you innings wise over the course of a season that's worth a lot of money to us and we will give that money to you if you're a huge portion of that money to you if you're able to pitch yeah so it's going to be a creative contract i think with incentives and and opt-outs and a bunch of other wrinkles yeah. that maybe we haven't seen for someone at this talent level. But DeGrom is age-wise getting closer to that range. He's 34. God, I always think he's older. As we've said before, he started pitching relatively late. Yeah. You know, he wasn't a pitching prospect when he went into college. So two-way player was a shortstop closer, right? Right. Yeah. Which, by the way, pretty good history of those guys. Sean Markham's the one I always come back to. He was, because I was with the Blue Jays when we drafted him, I still know the guy who, you know, the guy who drafted the area scout who drafted him, still working um, with Cubs now, Ty Nichols. Um, and he was a huge believer in, if you could just get this guy doing one thing, not only do I think he'll be better, but I think he can start. 
Uh, and I think we see a lot of those guys. Atlanta took Spencer Schwellenbach, who needed Tommy John at the time of the draft. He was one of those guys who I believe they'll make him a starter. There's one other one, right? And there's one in the draft this year. So we're those anyway, they're not all gonna be Jacob DeGrom, but we do have like reasonable history of taking that type of player and and turning them into into starters. And by the way, DeGrom had Tommy John win young, I think in college. It was college, yes. It was college, right? Then had a long track record of health. He was pretty healthy. He just wasn't Jacob DeGrom. I remember the first time it's funny, Paul D. Podesta was the one person who talked up DeGrom to me when he was still in the Nets system. Nobody else was on him. He appeared once, I think, in my Nets top 10 one year, just hardly appropriate. Uh, but at least I had his name somewhere. And then I remember being in Bristol and watching the first start and saying, oh my God, we were just watching it on TV and all of us were like, what the hell? Like, where have they been hiding this guy? But he just clearly, because he started late and had the injury, got better later and then had a pretty long run honestly i think from the tommy john but he had a long run of durability and it's just kind of cruel that edge he's been at his most effective he's truly elite we can't get him healthy like it's almost i don't know if he if we could keep him healthy would he just not be elite would he just is this just not a thing it's just fantasy i guess ultimately so jacob de grom led the league in innings pitched between 2017 and 2020. 690 in the third innings. Nobody threw more innings. Garrett Cole was at 688. Grinky, older age, 685. Scherzer, 661. So uh, this is very new, these durability issues. These are really last year and this year. That's pretty much... It's funny. I actually put it back another year or two in my mind. I would have said it started in 19 mm. or so. It's just interesting. It feels like we've been dealing with hurt Jacob deGrom for longer than that. It's the pain. Right, the pain is just so acute. It's the disappointment of of just not being able to watch him every fifth day because of this for the better part of two years. Mets fans are like, "Don't you talk to me about pain?" <laughs> I fear for Mets fans that this would be the biggest letdown that many of them have experienced if they're a younger Mets fan. If you're on the wrong side of forty as a Mets fan, you've lived through some some pretty rough stuff already. Yeah. But I think this team can break your heart in a way that previous Mets teams were incapable of because they're so good. They they should be good enough to beat anyone. And if they go out with some kind of whimper in the postseason, it is going to hurt worse than the typical Mets hurt. That is my yes. theory anyway. And by the way, with what do we got? 12 teams in the postseason, right? The odds are they're not going to win. Right. Nothing, nothing about the Mets specifically. Just there are some other teams out there that are also good and also trying to win. And the odds are against you. And that, right, this team, there's a lot of, there are a lot of fans going to get their hearts broken because that happens every October. It feels a bit worse for this Mets team because they were, and by the way, and they're still really good, but the expectations, I think, coming into this year were so much higher. And then they started out well. Mm-hmm. That was the other thing, right? There have been so many years where it's, oh, these freaking Mets, this team again. Oh, they're good. No, actually. They started well. They kind of held it all season. What do we got? A couple. We got less than a week to go at this point. They're they're going. They, they've they've held on well enough. This isn't one of those collapse Mets teams, and this isn't one of those we got to dig ourselves out of a terrible hole teams. They, they've they've done it so far. I, I don't know any Mets fans who are even cautiously optimistic at this point, but they've got to feel better than they have in a while, even if they don't want to admit it to themselves. Many of the Mets fans I know have that little 
kernel of doubt, even if the exterior is sure. jubilation and, and true excitement. And it's a, I, I hope they're happy and excited because they, they deserve to enjoy this team. It's a good team. It's worth worth being excited about them instead of being constantly pessimistic. Uh, you said good when healthy. Mike Trout, he's two homers away from 40. Do you remember Mike Trout when we learned of the, the rare spinal condition that he was diagnosed with earlier this season? And oh, yeah. we were all very concerned that with an Angels team going nowhere, Mike Trout's 2022 season might get cut short for yep. understandable reasons. Guy playing with like half a neck, he's got five and a half war. Yeah. And he, at one point this month, homered in seven consecutive games. Major league record is eight. So that was pretty eight. cool. Just yep. cr- crazy feats that you don't really see happen very often. And he's only had three days off since coming back from the IL on August 19th. So he's played, he started 34 of 37 meaningless games for the Angels, which makes me weirdly hopeful that perhaps, as he suggested, just doing some different things to manage this injury is possible. That we're not necessarily going down to, we're not going to the bad place where Mike <laughs> Trout's health is a constant source of concern for the next eight years. That's at least what I'm hoping based on what we're seeing late in the year. And, and that's, that's a choice. Yep. Maybe nothing's actually changed, but this is playing out differently than I expected it to based on where the news was at a few months ago. Yeah. God, I'm just looking at his, this is obviously not a Mike Trout season, right? It is his worst offensive season. I think probably ever. I mean, OPS plus I prefer WRC plus. I just happened to pull this up. Has it as his second Worst? No, sorry, third worst. It's a 170 WRC+. plus. I know, terrible. <laughs> I mean, I guess a lot of this is because just offense is down across the board. I'm just looking at the shape of this and thinking, eh, this is probably his worst season, actually. And it's still ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, obviously, it would be really nice to see Mike Trout in the postseason at some point. I'm not sure how we're going to get there. But he's 30. This is his age 30 season. There's going to be a lot of milestone chase mm-hmm. as long as he just stays healthy, right? He's going to get, right? He's at 348 homers. So actually, if he gets to 40 homers this year, he'll also be at 350. So 400, 500, 600. Well, you know, we're going to be doing all of this. Um, not to mention, I don't think it's actually a thing, a chase for 100 war, but he's only 19 away. He's going to get there. That's kind of a big deal. It puts you in the innermost circle. Like, there's a lot of things on his stat sheet that are going to be incredibly fun to watch would be nice if he did some of it on a playoff right because this is happening in relative obscurity again and i feel like for for me what gets me to tune into the angels the days otani pitches and then this time of year because those games don't matter they have to be playing someone who's playoff bound yes otherwise yeah i don't watch the angels which is terrible and that's that's been the second half of most seasons throughout Mike Trout's career. And I've I've seen so much less Trout than I should have seen in this day and age because of the franchise being what it is. Right? Yes. And I mean, this is one time when I can't actually blame Major League Baseball for failing to market itself. The team stinks. Yeah. They're just not, they're not gonna, you know, it's, we've talked a lot about the Angels this year, but it actually was less about the pitching and more that the offense around him, Otani and briefly Taylor Ward, uh, has been so disappointing. Actually, really, it, it's a pretty good sign that um, I had a column that went up Thursday about Logan Ohapi, and hey, they might have another 
impact that, at least relative to the position, coming pretty soon at catcher, which has kind of been a black hole for them for a long time. It, it's always going to – it's an uphill battle, and they're going to have to spend some money. But even just having you know, one, two more guys pop out of that farm system, which just hasn't been that productive, would be really good. Would be re- would, would be really a huge positive step. Because every year I feel like they're almost a playoff team, right? They're not that far away, and they end up a lot farther away than they spend like a team that should always be in the playoffs. Yes. They get TV money and they do spend it on payroll. But as we've said, yep. they don't spend it in all the other places that you need to spend it to consistently be good, to have depth, to develop a lot of talent. And that's no. that's the cutting corners problem that they've been running into for a long time. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever. And that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network. You're there to look for jobs. You're there to post jobs. And how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. I'm glad you brought up Ohapi because he is part of what I'm going to call the very last wave of prospects. I think I said last wave and uh, second to last wave a few weeks ago. So I think very last wave is what I have to to use to label this group of players debuting here in the final 10 to 14 days of the season. Mm-hmm. I was surprised that he he got the, the prospect of the year nod for you. Not because he hasn't had a great season. I just thought right. Gunnar Henderson or Corbin Carroll or some of those other guys that have been fantastic also might have taken home the... Uh, is it an NFT? Like, what kind of hardware are we talking about oh here? Oh, my God. Yeah, it's an ape. <laughs> it's an incredibly bored ape. But, okay, so the Logan O'Hoppy profile is good. It's a great offensive profile. They need a long-term catcher for the Angels. I like this trade a lot. Brandon Marsh went the other way. I think the Phillies might actually fix Brandon Marsh. They needed a center fielder. At the very least, they've got a center fielder. It was one of yep. my favorite trades from the trade deadline. O'Hoppy is getting a look right now. This is more of a broad question than one about Ohapi specifically, but there are a lot of players debuting in late September. Is this a meaningful look at them for their respective organizations where they're making decisions based on some process related things? Like what does this mean anything for 2023 and, and timetables for 2023 when we see players like Ohapi get the very, very late call up? A little bit. Um, certainly when a guy gets, you know, plays 10 games. You're not making decisions off of performance in such a tiny sample, but you know teams have always used that at least as a little bit of a scouting look. How does this guy look against major league competition? Uh, what you? Uh, how does he handle being in the clubhouse, for example? What does you know get to the coaches get to know him a little bit? We also now have the benefit of Statcast data. And you can see, oh, hey, this guy that we thought was hitting the ball pretty hard, 
I mean, Alec Thomas, for example, a prospect everybody liked. Nobody thought he had a ton of power, but but he probably had some average power. Guy, you know, it's real concern because he just did not hit the ball very hard at all in his major league tenure this year. Um, you know, I think that is a pretty legitimate concern going forward. And so if you call a guy up and, you know, maybe he only has 10 balls hit into play, but you might see something there where you're seeing uh, particularly good or particularly poor contact quality, for example, or other character. You see a pitcher come up and you get suddenly you're getting data with the major league ball in a major league ballpark against major league competition. So yeah, I think there's a little bit. It certainly helps if a guy comes up and shows you something along those lines. I think it can work a little bit against the player's timetable if they come up and strike out 45% of the time and, and look yeah. really overmatched because look overmatched. Yep. You say, oh, we're going to give you a month at AAA to start next season instead of giving you a shot on the opening day roster. So maybe maybe there's some downside, but I think most players would just want the opportunity. Let me let me prove what I can do. Let me show you that I am, in fact, ready. And, you know, Hoppy popped 26 homers at AA this year between the, the two affiliates that he's played for, got even better after the trade. So he's, he's playing really well. What type of long-term ceiling do you think he has as a big league hitter? I don't know that he's... Well, as a hitter, I think he... I think he might be a hitter who's a star for a catcher, not a star at another position, and catches well enough. I think this is a guy who makes some all-star teams. I think he can really hit. I saw him in Fall League last year. And the heck is this guy? And then he looked. He's from like 10 minutes from where I grew up also. So like, how the hell did I not know about this guy? So I, I do think he is um, – I think he's legit. I think that there's a question of whether he's going to be a good enough – defensive player for that ultimately to um, for him ultimately to be a true star but maybe he just hits well enough that he is I think there's solid average maybe maybe a lower contact rate than you want but very strong but he's, he has he made a ton of contact this year um, strong walk rates legit 20 to 25 homer power and again good at, more than good enough for me to stay at the position few other guys that have debuted recently. We talked about Ezekiel Tovar in the Rockies organization probably back in May or yeah. June as someone that looked a lot different in the minors than expected. The plate skills got a lot better. He's He missed some time with an injury, unfortunately, so we didn't get a full year between AA and AAA. But they bumped him up to AAA, I think, for five games, and then he actually is debuting here in the final weeks of the season. So age to level, I mean... Debuting at 21 is just, it, it's still very impressive, even though we see guys come up and some guys like Julio Rodriguez come up in their stars right away. Just getting to the big leagues this quickly is a massive win and a big step forward for Tovar. How much are you buying into some of the adjustments he's made this year and what amounted to a little less than a half season's worth of plate appearances at double A? Yeah, but love seeing a guy. He was young for his levels last year. He's young for starts at spent almost the whole year at Double A, right? Well, it's only sixty six games. He got about just short of three hundred plate appearances at Double A, though, and it massively increased his walk rate with no loss of anything else. Um, if anything, he gained in a couple of other areas too. And to see a guy who's young for his level and move up and make a substantial gain in something like, again, like walk rate, not to over emphasize that but still like he struck out a bit more i guess you could say that would be the one trade-off but that's fine you kind of want you want somebody in this case who's showing more he's l more comfortable going deeper into the county he was overly aggressive previously 
um, comparing more to the sample he had in low A last year to double A this year. To see him make those improvements was is a huge positive. He's somebody who scouts folks with the Rockies always very high on going back to when he was 17 and playing in the old in short season. So it's really nice to see that um, translate to come through as um, to see that start to come in as real on-field production, production, especially as he made progress. Because I think some of the, if you were just looking at performance data, you probably had a lot of questions previously. He's fascinating to me as someone who plays a lot of fantasy baseball because he has power and speed and looks mm-hmm. like he's got a job to call his own very soon. Maybe, maybe for opening day 2023. I think age is the thing that works against him here where they could, if they see something they don't like, pump the brakes a little, give him some more time at AAA and then bring him up first half of next year. I guess, man, you got to play somebody. If you're the Rockies, right, you're not going anywhere next year. You got to, at some point, mm-hmm. you got to put some of your better players out there. I mean, there's just, if you're trying to sell, I feel bad for somebody trying to sell Rockies season tickets, right? What is the what is the pitch? Mm, how's the craft beer? It's probably pretty good out there. Yeah, I haven't been to that ballpark yet. Do they sell yet. edibles in the ballpark? I sell them everywhere else in college. <laughs> well, yeah, so... I guess they have to put something outside the ballpark if they don't have them in the ballpark. But I guess there's a few ways to entice people. Beautiful ballpark. Beautiful downtown ballpark. Yeah. Love it. Yep. Um, Yeah. I'm not saying people are going to show up just for Ezekiel Tovar, but you've got to – you have exciting young players like that who are probably ready. Also, their AAA club is Albuquerque, right? We, We glossed over that. It's a pretty lousy place to develop any player, right? Hitter, it's an extreme hitter's environment, something like six, five, 6,000 feet above sea level. I think it's six. I think it's actually higher than Denver. It's just a terrible, it's a terrible place to pitch. It's also a terrible place to develop hitters because they're sort of rewarded for bad behavior, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of reasons to, to skip a guy over that. Say, so now we're just going to bring him to the big leagues. In, in Tovar's case, I would. I think he will show more than enough in the big leagues to be able to keep his head above water while he continues to make adjustments. And I don't know that he's going to get the challenges he needs going to Albuquerque. Things like recognizing breaking stuff. Well, not guess what? Nothing moves the same way in Albuquerque as it does at most other environments. So they're a club that I think one of the clubs I think has the most justification for jumping players from double A straight to the majors. And it's not like there's somebody blocking him either. No, I mean, Brendan Rodgers plays second base. Problem solved. Plays second base and has just underperformed so far. So he's not blocking anybody. Not yet. Yeah, I'm with you. Let's talk about the Pirates for a moment. O'Neill Cruz, of course, got a lot of attention when he came up. They've changed a few things on this roster. We've seen Jiwan Bay get promoted. Uh, Luis Ortiz, one of their pitching prospects, has come up. And I know he popped in Eno's model as someone that looked better than expected. So I don't know if the stuff just took a big step forward this year compared to where it was previously. Uh, They've had a few other, I thought, interesting players debut at various points throughout the year. One thing I liked about the Pirates coming to this year is that they weren't they weren't necessarily going to have 27, 28, 29 year old guys that you, you just knew weren't part of the future holding down spots all year. And there's been maybe a little less turnover than I expected, but there's still been some opportunities to get looks at their players. They also ended up with Miguel and Duhar. Uh, so, you know, at least he's got a spot where he can play and, and maybe just hit for a while. So you can pick any direction you want here. Did the Pirates, even though even though the, the product on the field is still not winning a lot, are they taking a necessary and decent step forward in their rebuild? 
first of all, I, I don't think Joan Bay should be anywhere near the majors. The guy was convicted in South Korea for violently assaulting his girlfriend. The fact that he's even still in the organization, never mind the big leagues, just appalling. We'll set him aside, though. I do think, in general, this club is really heading in the right direction. Um, I mentioned Eddie Rodriguez in my column on minor league player of the year, um, the main minor league player of the year, but he was one of the very one of the runners up. He was they got him in a minor trade last year for Joey Lucchese, um, who went to the Mets, and then I guess it was two winters ago. Uh, went to the Mets and pitched just kind of okay and then blew his elbow out. So this was a, an easy move for – this was part of the Joe Musgrove three-team trade. Um, so the Pirates really gave up Musgrove and got Indy Rodriguez as part of the return. Now they have two legit catching prospects who were in double-A for a huge chunk of this year. O'Neill Cruz was pretty – I would actually say a disappointment this year. The uh, – I mean, he does – he's a very, very huge man. He has a large strike zone, and I think that caught up with him a little bit this year. But I do still think he's going to be a pretty core part of the club going forward. I would, uh, I do think the one thing, oh, we should point out, you know, Mitch Keller had, you know, he, I think he's got a lot of work still to do, but he had his best year so far. Ronzi Contreras looks like he's going to be a starter for them for a long time. They've got, they're, they're getting there. They got some players, certainly. Uh, Quinn Priester is coming quick. There's a, there are some prospects um, on the way. And, and I've loved their drafts the last two years. The one thing I will say, though, is we're seeing it. Now we're seeing it with Cabrian Hayes. We've seen it with a bunch of other hitters who've come up through that system. Kevin Newman, another example. They are taking guys who should be ha- should be showing more power. And those guys are failing to develop at all. I mean, Cabrian Hayes, with barely a 100 ISO this year, is kind of appalling. Like I ne- He's not a 30-homer guy. He's never going to be a 30-homer guy. But he is not small or weak. His power has gone backwards for me. You know, Newman's main issue, he's one of the better contact hitters in all of baseball. And he's had flashes, but he, it, he basically has to hit 310, 320 to have any value at all because his contact quality is so poor. And this has been an issue for the Pirates going back to the previous regime. And I don't know what it is. But I know that this has been a pretty consistent problem for them, and it's the number one thing I think that could hold the Pirates back in this rebuild is they're going to have a hard time developing core hitters, like hitters for the heart of the lineup who have power. And guys, like you know, they, they're drafting talented hitters. They're finding talented hitters in the international side. They're trading for talented hitters. You have to be able to take those guys the next step and get them to essentially max out their power. Whatever their physical ability is, find that peak level. They just really haven't done that for a while now. And it is, I think, the main reason that the previous regime, which did put a couple of teams in the playoffs, why they started to taper. And now you're seeing it even carry over to to this group, too, where just they're getting underperformance, particularly in power and just contact quality, I would say, from their hitters. Yeah. One thing I thought we'd see happen with with Hayes is if he hit the ball in the air more often I thought he'd get to the power more yeah. consistently he did lower his ground ball rate this year 48.9 percent you'd still like to see maybe a, another step in that area but that wasn't the whole story it is a quality of contact issue or something in the swing that's just not quite working because he's got a 48.1 percent hard hit rate but a 4.1 percent barrel rate and I probably will take some time this winter and take a look and Look for guys that hit the ball really hard, but don't barrel the ball because that's an odd thing. That just means to me that would suggest you may only be a tweak or an adjustment away from actually getting to some power. And 
sure, 30 home runs might not be his future, but I thought he'd be a 20 home run guy. I thought that was within That's reach. That's what I thought. You could convert this guy, so to speak. Like As it was, he looked like a guy who'd hit a slew of doubles. I saw him in high school. I had him as a first rounder out of high school. He was an incredible defensive third baseman who had really good feel to hit a very simple swing. He was clearly going to put the ball in play a lot. Um, but you were going to have to work to get to some power. I probably said more like 15 to 18. Fine. He hit seven this year. We're not there. Yeah. That we got to get more of those doubles into homers to, to sort of fall into an old scouting development axiom. But there's no physical reason why he can't. And it has, I know under the previous player development regime, there was a huge emphasis on not striking out and going the other way. And this, I'll never forget talking to a pro scout about uh, Kevin Newman, um, who I loved as a prospect in the draft. And this scout actually was pretty positive on Newman. He said, the problem is they just have him going the other way. They just tell him, find something you can put in play early in the count. And if it's going the other way, that's what you do. And then it was just sort of soft contact. And it seemed like they were preaching that with a lot of their hitters. Now, I don't think they're preaching that actively anymore, but they also haven't found the secret to going the other way to getting guys to more sort of, you don't want everybody to be grip and rip, but it's not the worst thing in the world. Like I'm not a huge Nick Gonzalez fan, but I will say this, he goes after it, right? That guy puts, he's probably not going to be a very good hitter, but he'll put some balls in the seats because he just attacks pitches that he thinks he can drop. I would like to see a bit more of that elsewhere in the system. Yeah. To see if any changes are on the horizon for the pirates in, in that regard, just to, Try and shake things up and get a little bit more out of that group of young bats. Uh, one more player I want to ask you about before we go, Keith. Jordan Diaz getting an opportunity in Oakland. And they've played him mostly at second base. I think he's made one start. His debut came at first. He started a game at DH. And uh, in the minors, he played a lot of third base. But I I don't get the sense they like him there just based on the fact that he hasn't even played a game there yet in the big leagues. But what type of hitter is Diaz going to be? And is he a likely contributor on the next good Oakland team down the road. Yeah. This guy got there fast, huh? I just had to look. He was, he was in a ball all of last year, which obviously it's the A's, right? They can, they can do some of this stuff certainly, but it is interesting that they promoted him double A to triple A. Obviously it's always just a cup of coffee in September. I don't think it's terribly meaningful, but still I do think it is. Um, it's interesting that they were that aggressive in um in moving up he was only my 15th ranked prospect in what was not a very good farm system for them last year but he's always had a really nice the quiet simple approach making a lot of contact really good plate coverage even able to do it with some stuff out of the zone um and so he's had really good contact rates even though he will expand uh which i think is pretty impressive and obviously there's some power uh, there. He just, I have no idea where he's going to play. I mean, I said last, I'm just reading my own scouting report from him last winter. He's not good at third base. His bat may not profile at first or in left. Well, I'll take the second part away. I think the bat's going to profile at either of those spots. The problem is he may not play there either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe he's at DH. I mean, you got to try. You're Oakland, right? You're not trying to, you're not going to the playoffs next year. Pick a spot. You're playing there. And we're going to give you 50 games, maybe 50 games at each spot. 50 games at one spot. How about that? We're going to try to have you learn one spot. That doesn't work while you try the other spot. But I think it's probably fair to say the bat's going to profile anywhere. Now you're just trying to find the toughest place on the defensive spectrum that he can handle. Yeah, really low strikeout rates everywhere. And I'm interested to see what the contact quality looks like. Because I I do think that is 
of the underlying numbers you can get from 10, 15, 20 games, the, the feel for how high the contact quality is, is really important in giving you a sense of where the power is, at least currently. But even longer term, I think you can set more reasonable expectations once you have that information. I'm totally with you as far as just giving him giving him a spot and just seeing what happens because it looks like there's enough in this profile to let him figure it out. And maybe he can become a passable defender at one of those spots with enough reps. That's absolutely possible. You never know. We are going to go if you'd like to read any and all of the coverage we have on the site, be that you know, Aaron Judge's uh, Chase to 61, or you want to read Keith's Prospect of the Year piece with Logan O'Hoppy and some of the runners-up, you can check that out at theathletic.com slash baseball show. You can find Keith on Twitter at Keith Law. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. Have a great weekend. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Monday. <laughs>